Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Pastor Skyler, team for leading us. Good morning. Can I invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, would you open with me to the gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, Matthew 1. We're going to kick off a new series um, that'll take us through Christmas. And uh, if you're wondering what kind of activities or programs is the church uh, involved in around Christmas, you'll find those listed in your worship folder. And uh, man, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I didn't tell the first service this, I hope they come too, but I'm hoping that you'll join us not only for our Christmas Eve service, but also for our Christmas morning service uh, on, hey wait, Christmas morning, which is a Sunday, the Lord's Day, and uh, Christmas Day. So some of you will be thinking, dude, we got hot chocolate and pajamas and all that stuff scheduled. You can wear your pajamas and then go straight from here to Walmart. You'll fit in fine, it'll be great, it'll be good, come and do it, it'll be fine, me. I'm not, you're not throwing me at all. Uh, but I hope we'll see you for all of those things. This series that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks is really built around or uh, seeking to understand, to unpack, to share the fact that God brings hope. And Jesus is not just one of many hopes. He is a better hope. He is the only hope because he is the only name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. So I hope that uh, it'll be an encouragement to you over these next several weeks that we get to look at this together. We're going to talk this morning specifically on uh, his origin. We're going to talk about the, the virgin birth this morning. But let me just say to you, as uh, you found your way to Matthew chapter 1, I hope, and we're going to begin in verse 18 in just a little bit. I am grateful for you. It's good to be home. I'm grateful for you, and, and hey, I'm not preaching yet, so you can trust me. I'm grateful for you. I really am. I'm grateful Pastor Michael was here last week and, and preached, and uh, uh, I'm grateful that you sent Jody and I to go and minister on behalf of our church to um, not only our uh, family members from Inglewood that are serving in South Asia, but also for all of our uh, friends from South Asia who are part of our family who are serving there. And uh, we had a good time and we taught a number of days. We, I think we taught seven different sessions together uh, in, in marriage enrichment conferencing in that time away. Plus we did uh, marriage counseling, prayed with every single couple that was there uh, individually. So it was a good time and uh, grateful for that. Here's what Here's what catches me, one of the reasons I'm grateful, and no, I've not gotten into the message yet, but one of the reasons I'm grateful is, uh, hey, one pastor told me, he said, I've been, I've been married for 40 years. He said, I've never done this. I've never even had marriage counseling in any way in four decades. And you made it possible for him to be a part of that, to be, to be able to experience that. Another pastor told me, he said, uh, now, this guy teaches in Bible college and uh, teaches some of our partners there in their leadership development and, and some things. He said, he said, told me, he said, Chris, he said, I've never 
heard this kind of teaching before. We've not heard this in uh, India the way that, that you're sharing it. By the way, that's not always encouraging to a preacher. When somebody says, we've never heard that before, I kind of go, oh, wait a minute. That can be, it can be disconcerting. But really, he was saying, in our culture, we've not experienced what it is you're sharing with us. And this is good. And that's only possible because you sent. These partners got to experience a time of blessing and encouragement because uh, you know how hard it was for us working through the COVID crisis over those couple of years. Imagine living there. And yet that's what these pastors and church planters and friends were doing all of that time. And you made it possible through your generosity, through your giving, through your uh, the time that you've invested through your prayers, you made it possible for them to be blessed. And for that reason, I'm really grateful to you uh, as a church. I'm grateful for our tech team, uh, the technology guys up there. Matter of fact, would you just help me just say thank you to them? We hardly ever see them up there. And uh, I'm grateful for y'all. And here's, here's why some of you are joining us online today because of their ministry. And one of, the, one of the evenings, Jody and I were there. We were in the society where several of our friends live. And uh, we, we were up on the floor. We were waiting on an elevator, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, a lady came out of her, uh, her apartment and uh, saw me. And she looked at me like she knew me. Can I tell you, I just don't swing by the neighborhood often, all right? So this was... And uh, here's what happens. One of our family had invited her family to be able to just tune in and to experience church. So they've been with us for a long time. And uh, she went back in the apartment and got her daughter and uh, uh, her daughter came out there. So uh, I found out that they've been worshiping with us for a while or joining us in our worship services for a while. So uh, Primrose and Erica, if you're with us again this morning, I'm grateful for you. And I'm grateful I got to meet you a couple days ago and grateful for the technology that we have together to be able to share in that and uh, to do that. Hey, listen, those are gifts God gives us. And I'm glad to be part of a church that stewards those gifts well. So uh, I hope you're as grateful to be a part of our family as I am. Because, uh, you, because of your investment, we really were able to, uh, to carry out this vision that we believe God's given us as a church family to see homes transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we got an opportunity to pursue that together. So all that said, I am glad to be back with you as we kick off this series. And uh, as I mentioned, we were traveling back this past week from South Asia and we were waiting I don't even remember which airport it was probably Paris <clears throat> and uh, we were waiting and I was talking with a guy who is a scientist a brilliant guy works in the field of artificial intelligence uh, born in India educated in America at, uh, at UCLA and lives in Dubai what kind of a crazy world is that that he runs across a dude from Red Oak North Carolina in an airport somewhere else and anyway, we were chatting and talking about different things. And I asked him the question. I said, hey, are you a religious person? And he said, no, I'm not religious. I am spiritual. Well, you might as well just say sick them to a preacher. I'm just telling you, that just, that's wow. So we started talking about that. Here's what he meant by that. So I'll just unpack that for you. He meant that while he didn't consider himself religious, he was one who studied religion and he believed that all religions shared some commonality and that religion had been used politically and personally by folks for gain and things and that there was really 
what was essential was that you connected with a higher being, but how you connected was not really that big of a deal. That's what, I think that's the, the scope of where he was coming from on that. Which is fine with me, by the way. It's, it'll be fine with you. Unless, of course, there is a single true truth in the world to be known. Because see, that's all based on whether or not, that's based on the fact that we can't know what's true. But what if there is truth that we can know? What if there actually is only one true truth that's out there? What if there is an actual Savior? What if there is a reigning King? What if there is a living Lord? And if this is true, how are we to identify Him among all the religious figures throughout the world? How are we to identify and say, this is the one? among so many and how can we be certain of his identity how can we be confident in his purpose those questions ought to come to mind that's why we're going to look over the next several weeks at just who Jesus is and what he accomplished and why he came and what that means to you and I as we try to understand the hope that is in him a better hope one of the difficulties people have some time in accepting Jesus as the word of God reveals him to be is that we often, and this is just part of our humanity, but we often think of ourselves as kind of the center of our own little universe. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean it to be arrogant or haughty. It's just the way we think or talk about it. In fact, we kind of base everything based on us. Like today is the present. Yesterday was the past. Was it the past? Well, it was past to us, but it was future to somebody a long time ago. Tomorrow is the future. Is, is it the future? Well, it is to us, but it's the past to somebody to be born a long time from now. We think of everything with kind of centered around us, but what if we're not the point? What if, in fact, God intended or intends or desires, what if he wanted to reveal to us something that he was doing from a long time, from eternity past? Perhaps even a redemptive, restorative recovery mission that God was on. And you and I, while part of it, are not the center of it. What if God was progressively revealing this plan for all the world and we just stepped in in the middle of this thing that's going on? What if that were true? Then how could we relate to him? What if God were actually weaving together this tapestry, this beautiful image and we're but just a thread of it. We're not the whole story, but we are part of the story. And if that's true, then we have to know what truth is. We have to know who Jesus is. We have to know the role that he plays. And one of the things that str people struggle with in that is they go, there's things I don't understand, so I won't accept them. One of those is the virgin birth. One of our nation's founders, Thomas Jefferson, wrote in a letter to John Adams in 1823. And by the way, Jefferson, I, I think you know this, but he was a deist, or he would have articulated himself as a theist. He believed in God, but he discounted all of the miracles of Jesus. He discounted anything of the miraculous. He discounted that Jesus is divine, that he is in fact the son of God. He saw Jesus as a, as a, as a wise sage on a stage of his day, but he never saw him as the son of God. So, hey, here's, Jefferson was not a Christian. He just believed in a higher being. He was spiritual. Jefferson said, 
he predicted, he said that one day he expected the stories of the virgin birth of Christ, which were common in that day, would one day go the way of Greek mythology and would be considered or classed with the fable of the generations of Minerva and the brain of Jupiter. And you say, well, that's weird. How could anybody think that way? That's how he thought. Much closer to our present time, Larry King, a famed television talk show host, interviewer of some of the most prominent people on the planet was, he died last year, but he was asked once by someone who said, if you could go back into history at any point and you could interview a person and ask them any question at all, who would you interview? He said, I'd interview Jesus Christ. What would you ask him? He said, the number one thing I'd want to know is, is the virgin birth true? Because if in fact it's true, it changes everything. Friends, that's, that's really what it comes down to. If Jesus is who he says he is and we can know him, that changes everything. It moves us from some hope we could contrive to a better hope that God reveals. And that better hope is inextricably related to, it's linked to Christ's rightful role as God's redeeming king, which is identified to us by a number of unique markers beginning with this virgin birth. So I want us to explore that truth together. We're in Matthew 1, we're going to begin in verse 18, and we're going to work our way through verse 25. Can I invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Matthew 1, and we're going to begin in verse 18. If you're joining us from home again, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for... He will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments, I pray that you'd help us not only to see, but bring to mind quick in our spirit to not miss anything that you want to teach us, that we might know not only the person of Jesus, but his purpose and promise with it, that we might experience a better hope. For that to happen, Lord, you've got to work past our natural selves in the supernatural, so we're asking you to do it, and then find our response, pleasing in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline available for you. It's on the app. It's available to you if you'll text the word notes to the number on your screen. But I want to show you three, if I could, three elements pertaining to the significance of the virgin birth of Christ. Three essentials, three parts of the virgin birth of Christ that you and I ought to grasp that make it significant as we understand how we're to relate to God. First thing I want you to notice with me is that the virgin birth is essential to the trustworthiness of Scripture. 
It's essential. It's not ancillary. It's not secondary. It's not tertiary. It's essential. It's necessary. It's absolutely required if we're to have faith in the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, the veracity, the truthfulness of the Word of God. Now, you may have noticed in our text, specifically in verses 18, 20, and 25, the virgin birth of Christ was spoken of in a positive way. It was presented as a supernatural and special but not scandalous kind of way. Now, there was some level of scandal about it, if you will, because people said, she says she doesn't have a husband, but she's pregnant. And that was as odd then as it is now. But that was the sum total of it. It wasn't, you don't see the gospel writer going into, you don't see God laying out that this was a really terrible thing, but God can raise up good out of terrible. You don't see that at all. You do see supernatural, you do see special, but you don't see scandal. And not only do you not see scandal, the Bible tells us that Jesus' coming was actually planned. That it was uh, specifically planned in the way it was at the time it was. Jot down Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul writes to the church at Galatia and he says to them that when the fullness of time came, when the timing was perfect, at the exact right perfect time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman and born under the law. God sent forth his son, God sent forth his son at the perfect time, born of a woman and born under the law. Furthermore, when we read through the text, you saw in verse 23 how that cites Isaiah 7 and 14 as a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made seven centuries before Matthew speaks of it here. A 700-year-old prophecy. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Something that you could see. It's a signpost, a marker, it's an identifier. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Friends, that means that what Matthew writes of is true and factual right there in the moment. What was prophesied 700 years before, it must be true. Because if the virgin birth is suspect, then in fact all of Scripture is wholly unreliable. You say, well, why would that make all the Bible unreliable? Well, if you can't tell what parts are true and what parts aren't, how do you know how to trust any part? In fact, I'd say it to you this way, if you cannot trust all of Scripture, then you cannot trust any of Scripture. If you can't trust all of Scripture, you can't trust any Scripture. You say, Chris, are you, a, are you what they call an inerrantist? Do you believe in the infallible, inspired Word of God? I do. Why? I don't know how to pick the right parts from the wrong parts. I can tell you the parts I read, I don't always like all the parts. Some of them say stuff about me I disagree with. But I know they must be right and I must be wrong because my mind play tricks on you. But God never lies. If you can't trust all of Scripture, you can't trust any of Scripture. Paul said this. So he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He said, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable then for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. All Scripture. What was he talking about there? Well, he didn't even have a New Testament. 
He said the Old Testament scriptures, all of it, all of it, all of it, even the weird stuff, I mean like the places where God wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. You mean the stuff where like dude said, I don't know, I don't know, Lord, if I believe you or not, make this coat wet. Get up in the morning, it's wet. Okay, okay, okay. Make everything else wet, make it dry. You mean that kind of stuff? All scripture, all of it. If you can't trust all of it, you can't trust any of it. And it's these scriptures, the Old Testament, that point forward to a sinless, perfect, virgin-born Messiah. Well, where did you find those, Chris? Well, they start pretty early. Genesis 3, verse 15. It's what scholars call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And God, in the context of pronouncing the curse for rebellion, says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he, her seed, will bruise you on the head and you'll bruise him on the heel. Now you may say, well, that's an odd verse. It was to them too. They didn't get all of it, but God was progressively revealing some pieces. Here's what we know. He speaks of the seed of a woman, the offspring of a woman, the pro, the the child of a woman. And that's odd language because usually language speaks of the child as a descendant by a line of the fathers. Even here in Matthew chapter 1 where you see all the begets and so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so. And then there was the father of so-and-so and was the father of so-and-so. It's like that all the way through except verse 16 where he says, Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. Only there is the mother listed apart from the father. Why? Because they, excuse my bad grammar, they ain't nobody else like Jesus. He is who he is. Isaiah said, Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 tells us, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name... <laughs> that one we sang about. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on this throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, how the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was written 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And that prophecies of a child who's born, but not only a child who's born, but rather a son who is given. And that he would establish and uphold the throne of David and that his name would be eternal father. Wait a minute. You don't say that about somebody's born. Born means start. But when Jesus was born, they said, you can go ahead and call him eternal father. Because he is God. He's appearing. <laughs> He's coming like you and I. But Jesus didn't get his beginning here. He is eternal in every way, just as the father is eternal in every way, just as the Holy Spirit is eternal in every way. Some might argue, and they'd say, well, 
Chris, honestly, we don't want to get divisive about stuff. Why would we, why would you want to make such a big deal out of a secondary doctrine like the virgin birth? Uh, quote me on this. Because it ain't secondary. It's essential. And, and if it's not true, then you can't trust any of the rest of it. Because you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between what is true and what isn't true. Because it claims to be true. The point, though, is not so that you and I would come up with a doctrinal statement that's well thought out, every word perfectly in place, but rather so that we would understand that apart from the virgin birth, there is no salvation. That's the point. Apart from there being a virgin birth, there can be no salvation. So notice, secondly, with me that the virgin birth is essential for the sufficiency of substitution. It's essential for the sufficiency of substitution. It's essential for the trustworthiness of the scriptures. It's sufficient, it's essential for the sufficiency of the substitution. You and I have a problem. We're rebels, we're sinners, we sin. And in order to atone for sin, there must be, it requires the blood of the sinner unless someone would stand in in our place. So for the Messiah to accomplish what's needed, he would have to be, first of all, sinless and perfect because the sacrifice had to be perfect. Even the, even the Paschal lamb, they would take and examine it, taking the prime of its youth and they would examine it, look for blemish or defect or anything wrong with it. And if there was, it was considered not a sufficient sacrifice. But if in fact it was examined and said, this is a perfect lamb, then they would sacrifice it in the place of to buy time for, to atone for the sins of the one who brought it as it would stand in his place. So for a Messiah to be able to do what he says he did, he would have to be sinless and perfect, but he would also have to be fully human. You say, why is that? Because God can't die. God cannot die. This means that whoever this sinless one would have to be sinless and perfect, God. But then he has to die, so he'd have to be man. He couldn't be just a little bit God and a little bit man. He couldn't be a little bit, he couldn't be like mostly man and a little bit, he couldn't be any of those. He'd have to be fully God, perfect and fully man, able to die in our place. Only one can be both God and man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Jot that down, I don't have it on your notes. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, also, likewise, partook of the same. We are flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Only through his becoming as we are would he be sufficient as a substitute for what we've done. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, like us, has been tempted in all things as we are yet, without sin. He can only be tempted as we are as us. 
So Christ in his humanity experienced everything we experience. He, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet he perfectly, sinlessly lived his life. Only he did that. Hebrews 7, verses 25 to 27. It says, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Let me say that again. He, Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of his sinless perfection, he is able also to save forever, not till you blow it again, but forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Here's the point. The sufficiency of Christ's atonement is directly connected to the suitability of Christ's sacrifice. He cannot, he cannot substitute for us and satisfy the atonement unless he is sufficient as the sacrifice, unless he's suitable. So if Jesus is not virgin born, he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, then he's not a suitable sacrifice. And if he's not a suitable sacrifice, then there needs to be another sacrifice for you and for me because we're still in our sins. But Christ did satisfy the sin debt. He does settle the debt. He is perfect. He is suitable and sufficient. Hebrews 10 and verse 12 says, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now think about this for just a second. See, there's a picture in there that may, you may just skip right over. When God gave the blueprint and he laid out and said, here's how you build the tabernacle, he gave very detailed schematics. It's to be this tall, this long, the curtains look like this, the rods look like this, the furniture, the altar, the bronze altar should look like this, the, 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 the box that's got the, the covenant of the law and, and Aaron's rod and all these, it's to look exactly like this. Each spoon, each bowl, each everything, each fork that you go in and stick, everything is to look just such a way. Do you know the piece of furniture he never put in a chair do you know why because the high priest job was never done see where the priests worked they would come and they would come over there and they'd say uh chris what's going on today man i blew it here's my sacrifice and they would take my sacrifice they would examine it they would bring it in they would offer up the sacrifice it would be the atonement for my sin there but you know the problem i'm gonna get up again tomorrow and do it again and I got to go back and do it. And not just me, but every other person on the planet. So the priest never sat down. You say, well, he had to sit down sometime. No, they'd have shift change. But while he was in there, he was working. He was always making a sacrifice. But when Jesus, the great high priest, stood in my place where he gave his life for me, he finished the work and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? There's nothing else to do. Because his sacrifice is sufficient. He's suitable. He settles it. Virgin birth not only fulfills the scripture perfectly and makes Jesus sufficient as our substitute, 
But his perfection, beginning with the virgin birth, does another thing for us. Notice number three, it reveals perfectly the heart and character of God. The virgin birth reveals perfectly the heart and the character of God. Matthew 1 verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Translated means God with us. God with us? God's with us? Yes. Why would God hang around with us? If it was just us, he wouldn't hang around with us. <laughs> but the us that Jesus has fixed, well then, God's right here with us. God with us. Verse 25 says that Joseph, after the dream, after the angel speaks to him in the dream and says, man, Mary hadn't been stepping, excuse my new Chris translation, paraphrase. Mary hadn't been stepping out on you. This is something God did. And he woke up and he kept her, verse 25 says, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now, teenage Chris used to go, well, now, wait a minute. Is that some kind of inconsistency? Because I thought they'd call his name Emmanuel. And yet... Joey names him Jesus. So is it Emmanuel or is it Jesus? Is that his middle name? Is that his last name? Has he got a surname? Has he got an appendix name? What is that? You can't have two names. Well, no, you can't have two names, but God can have as many names as he wants to have. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. And here's what he says. Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, the Lord, saves. Why did God come to be with us? That he might save us. That he might save us. And God didn't send a, he didn't send a rhinoceros savior. He didn't send a giraffe savior. He didn't send a, he didn't send a really sincere person savior. He sent his own son as Savior. What does a virgin birth tell us? It says God sent his very best, his very perfect himself to dwell among us, to reveal himself to us, and to give, him, give his life for us that we might take on his righteousness and become like him. Well, there's the heart of God. The Lord saves. That's why Joseph named his son Jesus. It literally means the Lord delivers or saves. The Lord's with us and he delivers and saves us. And that helps us understand God's heart. John, it's always been God's heart. John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved you and I, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. He gave a son. A son is given, Isaiah prophesied. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but instead of dying, would have life forever, eternal life. Well, that's just the facts of what he did. That's what Jesus did. Yeah. Maybe God didn't like it. No. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn, uh, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When God sent Jesus, he said, I want you to experience the forgiveness, the freedom, the power, the restoration, the redemption that comes only through Him. He wants us to be reconciled. You say, man, poor God. He had to send Jesus. We had made such a mess out of things. No, bless God. 
gracious God who said, you don't even know what you're missing and you're not worthy of it anyway, but I want you. And he rescues and reconciles in love and by grace. That's not in any way a response to our goodness, but overflows from God's desire. So he sends his son not to condemn, but to save. Because you know, that's God's nature. That's who and how God is. God is not an angry old man sitting upon the front porch of heaven throwing rocks at you. If he were, you'd be covered in rocks, just like I am. If God were to sit up there going, you knucklehead, his aim would be true and you'd be dead. It's not his nature. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't set out to say, I'm going to show you that's the third time you've disobeyed me this week. I'm about to, I'm thinking of things my mom would have said. I'm about to, that's not God. God's not sitting around looking for ways to bring judgment on us. That's not his heart. He didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's not an angry old man on the porch. God's also not a benevolent grandpa sitting up in his rocking chair ignoring all the crazy stuff his baby grandkids are doing and handing them lollipops. God doesn't look at your rebellion and go, aw, but you're so adorable. You say, well, how do you know grandpas do that? I'm a grandpa. My grandchildren are perfect. Unlike yours, mine are perfect. No, no, no. God doesn't sit down and look at us and go, Ah, that's not a big deal. We're going to skip that one. Do you know there's nothing that you or I do that God ever skips over? Nothing. Hey, listen, when you were in the third grade and you were taking that test on the capitals of the states and you looked over and borrowed an answer from the person beside you, God didn't look over that. He marked it. You stole their intellectual property. You stole their study and you lied on your test and you lied to the teacher and you lied to your parents when you got a B plus and you keep on lying. God didn't overlook it when you when you pulled your sister's pigtails and blamed it on your brother. You say, surely he doesn't care about that. For the wages of sin, singular, is death. He does care about that. God cares about everything that you and I might pass off. God cares about you lying on your tax returns in a couple months. God cares about you lying when you, when you walk in here. You know he knows, right? I know you, you sing the song about he knows when you are sleeping, he knows when you're awake. But actually God does know. And listen, here's what he did. He said, Chris, I'll take each one of your sins 
and I'm laying them right on the back of Jesus. Each one, each single, solitary, rebellious, evil, anti-God one of them. Your lust, your adultery, your, uh, your spitefulness, your unfaithfulness, your failures, your anger, your everything. I'm laying it on Jesus and He will become sin so that we who are sin could know His righteousness. He took on our rebellion so that we could take on His righteousness. And God didn't have to. He wanted to. That's why he didn't send a He didn't send a secondary. He didn't send the lowest common denominator. Where are my army dudes? This is responsive time. I could have you come on up here. We could just sing a song together or something. There you go. There you go. Chemical warfare school. Here, put on this very uncomfortable thing, put a mask on. Why? Because it'll protect you from bad stuff outside the mask. All right. When do I get to take it off? When we know it's all clear. How do we know it's all clear? We grab the lowest ranking, least essential person in the unit, and we go, you first. Why? He might get dead. I mean, we'll check everything best we know, but at the end of the time, we're looking for something. We need a sacrifice. Let's send the one we'll miss the least. Is that how Jesus did? No, sir. He took his one and only, the only begotten son. And he brought him in and took the place of a scoundrel like me. Perfect scoundrel. Settled. Sufficient. saved that's how he operates that's his heart and that's what's revealed to us Isaiah 9 6 for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government the whole administration all the world will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I've been, a, I've been in church longer than I've been a Christian, so just bear with me for a second. I know folks that say to me, Chris, I get all that. I bought all that. If I'd known you were going to talk about that today, I'd have just gone and found a cantatter somewhere, and I'd have gone and listened to people sing. I'm not asking if you know it. I'm asking if it knows you, if you can relate to it. See, I've counseled folks before that would said to me, they said, you know, Jesus, I get. Man, I get that. And Holy Spirit, I get that. I read the shack, I get that. And I'm all in, I got that. But man, I have a hard time believing in God's goodness because it talks about him as a father. And can I just say to you, my father, was not much to look at. He was angry or he was absent. He was arrogant. He was abusive. And when you tell me God, when you tell me God is my father, 
I start to think that he's like my father. So I, I don't know if I can relate to him. Hey, listen, listen to me. Because as much as one person can get another person's experience, which is not well. But I want to say to you, God's not made in the image of your father. Your father is a fallen, broken image of a holy God. But not the other way around. This father gave his one and only son. Perfect substitute for a scoundrel that you might be saved. This is the right one, the right way. He's righteousness. And he didn't want us to miss any of that. Which is why he laid out very clear markers that said, Jesus is not some person who grew up and said good stuff and we've somehow turned him into a God that we want to follow what he says. He said, I've been planning this since before you were ever a little twinkle. And I've been revealing it to you and now it's available to you if you'd receive it. Have you, have you come to know him like that? Not, not an idea of him, not know about him, but I mean know him. To know the love of a father who would say to you, I so want you reconciled and in my house that my own son will die in your place. If you haven't, I want you to know. Remember, he's not on the porch with a, with a bucket of rocks. He's saying to you, come to me if you're weary and burdened. If you're tired of that and you want it, come and I'll give you the rest you've been looking for. This isn't some hope that you can contrive or some philosopher discussed. This is a better hope which God revealed and it's available for you. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.